Thanks very much, Dorothea, for coming up a second time today. You're very welcome, Gordon, and all of you. <laughs> Are you turning your hearing aid off or on? I'm turning it on. I had it okay. off for the music because it was okay. a wee bit on the loud side for ah, me. Right. <laughs> I, I had an experience interviewing Diane here. I don't know if you were here that Sunday night. but I think not. No, whatever her hearing aid was doing, she couldn't hear me, and I was this close. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> hopefully that'll not happen tonight. But yeah, my hearing is not as bad as Diane's, not yet no, anyway. that's good, that's good. <laughs> Mine's not brilliant. Uh, I feel like a diversion here, but I, I'll, I'll try to get back. I'll get back on track in a minute. But yesterday I was out cycling with a few friends, and they were talking away and telling me things and uh, I hadn't a clue what they were saying. Uh, and it, recently, a good friend of mine sadly went through a marriage breakup. And while he was out on the bike, he told me about this. And this is maybe not an appropriate place to start, but anyway, I'll, I'll finish my story. Uh, I discovered months later about this, and I went and said to him, mate, what happened? Why didn't you tell me? And he said, no, I did tell you about six months, a couple of months ago on the bike, but I knew you, you didn't hear me. <laughs> anyway. Sometimes it's good if the person you conf you're confiding in doesn't hear you. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is this too loud? It no, sounds no, funny no, to perfect. me. Perfect. Okay. Uh -huh. the, the guys will control all that. Uh, Dorothea, I know a bit about your family background, and I know that it's woven into this church and our association in lots of ways. So tell us a bit about your background, your family, where you grew up, uh, and the influence of that home that you grew up in, please. Okay, well, um, if you read the uh, history of Windsor, the, the book that was brought out recently, uh, the founder members are listed. Uh, my parents are two of them, Mr. and Mrs. J. Jeffrey, and also my mother's brother, Mr. Mr. W. Hagen, and his wife uh, were among both. So that's four out of about maybe, what was it, eight or nine founder members, and our close relatives. And they were soon joined by uh, another brother of my, my brother of my father's, and uh, two of my mother's sisters, and the husband of one of them. And I think my grandmother and her husband joined soon after that. So when I was a child, you know, this, the church was full of my relatives. Okay, family <laughs> gathering. My, uh -huh. my two sisters and my brother as well, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And your sister, Helen, you, yeah. was Helen born at the foundation of the church? Was she, she was? She was born in 1924, so okay. yes, okay. the answer yeah. is yes. Oh yeah, she was here. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah, Adele was born about the time of the, that the church was built. Right. Yeah, right. Oh, it was, no, she was born in 1932, I think. Anyway, yeah, okay. somewhere around then. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to ask when you were born. Uh, that would be no. a tr trick question, but we'll, we'll keep, <laughs> keep moving on. Um, After the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll not say how long after. But you're, uh, you, you talked about your parents and their influence and their form, being founder members here. 
Tell us a bit more about your dad's wider interest and involvement in the Association of Churches. Well, he was certainly treasurer of the foreign mission, mm-hmm. um, and he was treasurer of Windsor, I believe, for, for a number of years. Okay. Um, he had a very good business brain, which he yeah. used for, for the Lord's glory. Great, <laughs> great. Yeah. Did, he, did he have a shop or something? Was That's that right, he had a shop in High Street, uh-huh. Jeffreys yeah. of High Street, right. uh, sold leather goods, suitcases and handbags. And yeah, it was originally a saddler, but that was before my time. Okay, yeah. okay. But he was able to uh, make money on the business front, but also invest and, and, and help the... Yeah, he, as treasurer of the foreign mission, he was able to make money at times on the currency exchange. I've always managed to lose money on the <laughs> currency exchange, but he was at times able to make money on that, and then that money was put aside as, I think, an emergency fund for the, for the missionaries mm-hmm. or for, for their medical needs and things like that, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think he also started the pension fund for the missionaries, okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, I... I I suppose I'm indebted in some way, indirectly, as director of Baptist Missions for a while. You know, I saw the structures that had been in place for generations and the care that went into looking after the missionaries. And I, so, no doubt. Yeah, I would say that my father had a lot influence. to do with that. Yeah, 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 that sounds like the sort of thing he would uh-huh. think of. Yeah. I found among the papers that I've been going through from time to time, I found the last letter that my father wrote to my sister, who was a missionary in India at the time, Mm -hmm. just before he died, and I thought, oh, you know, what wonderful things are in this letter. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it was all about her national insurance contributions. (laughs) I thought, right, yes, that's my daddy. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, You were born in a Christian home. How did you come to know Jesus yourself? Well, it was through my mother reading the Bible to me every night. And uh, what I remember is, and I think I must have been about nine at the time. I'm not sure. I, I'm not good at dates, so I'm not sure what year it was, much less what month or day. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was reading John's Gospel, and she read the Passion story. Mm-hmm. And I was very deeply moved by that story. Now, all my life, all that, as far back as I can remember, I knew the gospel. I knew that I needed to surrender my life to Jesus in order to be saved. And um, I knew I ought to do that. Hmm. But I didn't want to because I wanted to have control of my own life. Um, So, but when I heard of of the love of Jesus, that he was willing to go through this for me, Hmm. then I couldn't hold back anymore. And I, I surrendered my life to him. Now, I didn't understand very much at that point, and yeah, it was, we could say it was an ongoing process, but that was certainly the beginning of it, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you, are you saying you were quite strong-willed? Me? <laughs> <laughs> People well. said to me sometimes, oh, you must have great patience. I've no patience at all, Gordon, but I'm very okay. stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I remember the privilege of visiting your mother when she was still alive. Uh, yeah. When you lived on the other side of the street, on up a bit. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I was very conscious that the home where Christ had been honored. Yeah. And many people had been influenced. 
So what did you do then after that, when you finished school? What did when you I finished school, I uh, went into the civil service as a clerk, and I found that very boring. <laughs> and <laughs> well, my ambition was to be an opera singer, but that's another, okay. another question. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I found being a clerk very boring, uh -huh. and then I got an opportunity to train as a computer programmer. I was trained by the civil service as a computer okay. programmer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was back in the late 60s, wow. middle 60s in fact. Mm -hmm. So the computer, computer room would have been about the size of the foyer out there. Mm. Uh, and it was not as powerful as the one I have in my pocket right now. Yeah, not as powerful as that. It's incredible, mm -hmm. in incredible the changes that there have been mm -hmm. in computers. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but as a a computer programmer, you don't have a lot of stature there. Dare I say for these huge machines? But uh, that was that was your world anyway. Yeah, you don't need to be big to program a computer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You just yeah. need to be intelligent. <laughs> Well, a certain kind of intelligence, shall we say, yeah. Well, okay, let's take that a wee bit further then. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> God has given you this kind of uh, call on your life, saying, give me control, and he's given you capacity and certain boredom in civil service and, and a hunger to use you. Where did that take you as you put your life into his hands? Okay, well, I'll tell you the story of how God called me into Wycliffe. Mm. And it started with desire for adventure and to see a bit of the world. And a lot of my friends were getting jobs abroad, uh, my, my colleagues in the computer world, mm. um, getting a job in, as it might be, South Africa or Saudi Arabia, or I don't remember all where. And, um, you know, I thought, yeah, that would be fun, get a, get a job abroad summer for a year or two mm. and then come back home. Uh, by this time I had worked out that I wasn't actually good enough to be an opera singer, <laughs> which was a bit of a blow at the time, but never mind. Um, yeah, so I started applying for jobs abroad. Now, I think I never twigged at that time that um, all my friends who were doing this were mostly men. And maybe that was why I never got any of these jobs. <laughs> anyway, while I was, while I was doing this, uh, my sister Helen, who got the Wycliffe magazine regularly and obviously read it and prayed over it, and she said to me, oh, Wycliffe are looking for computer staff in Brazil. So I thought, oh, Brazil, that's quite exotic. Yeah, I'd like to go to Brazil. Um, and I assumed that this was a job like any other job. And I applied to, I wrote to Wycliffe and said, you say you need computer staff, and I'm a programmer, and I've this and so experience. And they wrote back and said, well, actually, that's not what we need, or, or the position is filled. Can't remember exactly what they said, but they said, you know, we find computer programmers make very good Bible translators. And he sent me, this was the candidate secretary, of course, he sent me a lot of literature. And I thought, well, you know, what I had in mind was a couple of years and uh, coming back home, and I'd certainly expected to be paid for it. I didn't expect it to be self-funding. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, oh, a lifetime's commitment? Nah, no, that's, that's too much of a big deal. So, but I did read the literature and I was fascinated. I was absolutely fascinated by the uh, whole area of linguistics. Uh, I hadn't been particularly good at language at school. It was maths that I was good at. But uh, the idea of analyzing a language, an, an unwritten language, uh, discovering its grammar, and discovering how to write it down, that was fascinating. And uh, the more I read, the more I was fascinated. And I thought, well, you know what? I could go as a voluntary helper to that summer school during part of my, um, take part of my annual leave to do that. So I went for a week to their summer school and I was even more fascinated. Uh, and as I said, none of the other jobs that I'd applied for were any use. And you know, Gordon, the experience, I can, I can remember as a young person, there was a lot of talk about discovering what's God's will for your life and you need to know what God, and it was kind of like it was an intelligence test uh, that God wanted to see if we could work it out right. Yeah. And it's not like that at all. God wants us to know his will. And in fact, with me, it was more like, what are you telling me, Lord? I can't hear you, la, la, la. <laughs> I knew good and well that, that uh, for quite a while that he wanted me to go into Wycliffe. And in the end, I gave in and uh, applied to Wycliffe, as I said, in, in 1974. But I think that, that first taster of a week at the um, summer school was... Uh, a lot of what convinced me that that's what I wanted to do. It is fascinating work, yeah. and I yeah. enjoyed it, yeah. yeah. It is amazing. I, I've been at the distribution end when there was a Wycliffe team working in North India for many years in a, a language called Maithili, and I remember the first time the New Testament was published, and we were part of a big distribution group with OM, bringing it out into people's hands for the first time. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, 74, you applied. You, you went then in 77, is that? I went out to Africa in 77, 77. yes. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, training was, uh, I think it was 73 to 77. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds like four years. Intense. It wasn't four yeah. years. Okay. It was three, but uh -huh. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, Dorothy, I wish we could chat over those 50 years in detail because there's so many things that I remember a little bit so of, which have probably most of it, you know, I didn't really understand fully. But one of the striking things this morning was you talked about all of these things that just cut across the work you were doing, uh, another crisis, another war, another evacuation. Uh, I don't want to just focus on that, but what was it like being in this situation when you were beginning to make progress and then realized, we've got to get out of here? How did you cope with all that? Very, very frustrating. Mm. And um, I, certainly, I certainly didn't want to leave Maridi in South Sudan, where we were, and uh, I was convinced we would be, it would be fine to stay. And I was inclined to think the same thing in Zaire too. You know, it'll all blow over if we just keep our heads down. Mm -hmm. With hindsight, I can see that it would have been a mistake to stay. Mm 
-hmm. We could maybe have a stayed a few more months in Marini, but you know, we would have had to go in the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would have been a big mistake to, to stay in Zaire. It was very hard. I was happy in Marini. We were living in a village with, um, really as part of a family compound with the Mondo family. And they were like family to us. It was very hard to leave them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we, we didn't know what would become of them. They went off to hide in the bush. And um, you know, the, the elder that had taken care of us, he died. I might have lived if we'd been there. He wasn't killed, but he, he died of uh, whatever disease it was. He wasn't, he probably didn't get any treatment for it. If I'd been mm -hmm. there, I might have been able to yeah. get, get him some treatment. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of thing. It was hard to leave them. And also, you know, I had this goal to translate the, the Mundo New Testament. And I think, um, yeah, to, I felt, you know, why, why isn't God letting me get on with this? This is, this is good work for him, and I'm enjoying doing it, and I'll get prestige from having done it. <laughs> You know, I have to confess mm -hmm. that these are the, There's I mean, I didn't consciously think that, but I know now that yeah. that was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very driven by this goal of finishing the translation. So, mm -hmm. yeah, now the evacuation itself was, was quite interesting. We, there were, let me see, there were four roads out of Maridi. One went north into the Dinka area. There were two that went uh, eastward to the capital, but two different routes you could go. And then there was one that went westward. And of course, there was the aeroplane. We used to fly in and out uh, often with a um, six-seater Cessna. And uh, the, there was a contingency plan in place that if two of the roads and the airstrip closed, then we would have to be evacuated. Mm -hmm. And there was also a case of, of uh, four missionaries being kidnapped in the town of Mundri, which was maybe a hundred, couple of hundred miles away, mm -hmm. not that far, maybe a hundred miles. So uh, that was when we were told to evacuate. But that, well, the road north had been closed from almost the beginning of the war, so it was closed. And the two roads to Juba, the capital, that, that went eastward, they were both closed. So the only road that was open was westward, which um, went to the town of Yambio, which was right on the Zaire border. And the idea was we would all, there was about, uh, well, at least half a dozen families in Maridi at this point. And we all went uh, as a group. We all drove to, along the road to Yambio, and we thought we would go across the border into Zaire, but we didn't have the right papers, and the Sudanese authorities wouldn't let us go. I think we could probably have, um, yeah, we could probably have managed to get into Zaire all right, but the Sudanese authorities were less corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, don't quote me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that didn't work out. And then the road, well, they were going to send the airplane to Yambio and 
fly us all to Juba, and we'd have had to leave our cars behind. Uh, but that didn't work. I think they couldn't get permission to land in Yambio. Mm -hmm. And they certainly couldn't get permission to land in Maridi. So then the, one of the roads to Juba opened up, and we all drove back to Maridi, and I spent one more night in my happy home, mm -hmm. um, sleeping on the floor because we'd given our bed away. And then we had to drive out by one of the roads towards uh, Juba. And Alice and I said, well, actually, we'll only go halfway, and then we'll go across the border from there. So we stayed behind in the town of Ye. Everybody else went on to Juba. This is too complicated. If we had a map, you would understand yeah, it better. Right. But this is how it went. It was all taking weeks. And I was saying, but the road's open now. You know, we could, we could stay. We could stay. The road's open now. But the director didn't quite see it that way. Yeah. And did yeah. all this communication take place over two-way radio, or how, how did you...? Over, yes, two-way radio. There were no mm -hmm. mobile phones in yeah. those days, yeah. and certainly no landlines in South Sudan. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we stayed in Ye, and we thought we'd go across the border from there, but we still didn't have the right papers, so we sent our passports with the others to Juba, and they were supposed to send them back to us. Uh, meanwhile, then the road from Ye into Congo, which we had planned to take, it closed. There was, uh, the bridge was blown up, or a, a unimportant bridge was blown up, and we couldn't take that road out. And then uh, one thing and another, we stayed in Ye for, I don't know, a month, maybe two months. And then finally, we drove out by another route, and we went with an army convoy. And there was a guy in front with a minesweeper looking for landmines on the road, and it, it all went at walking pace. There was great competition to be up at the front of the convoy, and I'm saying, I don't think I want to be at the front. I think in the middle is probably the safest place to be. You don't want to be the last one, the straggler, but probably safest in the middle. Anyway, we all got safely to where we were going. We got to the border and were able to get across into Zaire and then drove to the mission station at ABBA, which we knew quite well. And yeah. yeah, so, yeah, yeah okay. it was quite yeah. an adventure, that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, but it was the leaving of, of our friends in Maridi that was hard, and then adjusting to life in Congo. Mm -hmm. I had expected it to be the same as Sudan. You know, it was this, it was only, if it was 100 miles, it wasn't more than that as, as the crow flies. And it was the same people, the Mondo people on both sides of the border. But it actually was a very different country in many ways. There was a lot of, there's a lot of legacy from the um, colonial times. And the Belgians did not treat their colonies well. Uh, I was very surprised when I first went to, Su to South Sudan that one of my friends said to me, is there any hope the British might come back? And as an Irish person, I'm going, what? <laughs> Do you want to be ruled by the British Empire? And they said, mm -hmm. yeah, well, we've always been ruled by somebody, and the British were the best. Mm -hmm. A lot better than the Arabs, they said. Mm -hmm. uh, pardon me if there's any Arabs in the audience. Mm -hmm. South Sudanese are quite prejudiced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Dorothea, there's, there's that. Then there's the whole experience of being evacuated again. Uh, I would encourage you to 
have a coffee with Dorothy and hear more of some of yeah, these I incredible stories. But that brought you through. You know, you could well, see what you wanted. You wanted yeah. to be able to hold that. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Translation. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all these obstacles. Yeah. And uh, you know, another thing. Well, again, this might be for a different chat, but I suppose you know something of the experience of families here who've had to uproot and leave their homes and leave all that's familiar and come to Belfast. I have some idea what it's like. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not the same because I always had my home in Belfast. My, the family home was there, so I, I had some roots. But particularly as a second evacuation, we went out to Nairobi and there was an awful lot of people evacuated out to Nairobi at the same time. So there were all, yeah. And there was a limited amount of housing. And of course, the families with children got the first go at the housing, which is fair enough. But it seemed like they thought the single women didn't really mind if they were, of course we were never out in the street, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, we were actually always had a good place to stay, but we might have to move every couple of weeks. And so I, I can really sympathize with those um, asylum seekers who have to end up having to move every couple of weeks or you know even every couple of months it mm -hmm. is not easy mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you shared with me that there was a, a song that was quite important at the time that said something to yeah you. it was, Tell us it was that. at that time in Nairobi and it was a song that I'd never heard before and I heard it in Nairobi Baptist Church mm -hmm. And I think you're going to play it now. It's yeah. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Okay. And at that time, there seemed to be to be no way that I could continue with my work that mm -hmm. I was. And I'd like to say that it was because I was upset that the Bundus wouldn't get the scriptures in their own language. And maybe there was some of that in it, but it was partly that I wouldn't get to accomplish my goal of mm -hmm. holding up the New Testament. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, we're going to have an interval tonight right. with a wee, um, I don't know if, uh, Mario, you could play just uh, a verse of this song and it's called God Will Make A Way.
Sorry if you were wanting the whole song, but you can listen to it on YouTube. Uh, Dorothy, how, as you, this is just kind of parking this now, I feel like there's so many ways in which, what are the lessons that you have taken from all the ways in which God made a way, and, and you've, you've been honest about your own ambitions, and thank you for that, but are there other things that stand out? Well, I, I think it, well, one of, the, one of the early things that I learned is that when you're in a war situation, you pray an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's good to pray the rest of the time as well, but you know, when you're in a situation where you might be going to drive over a landmine or into an ambush, you're going to pray about which way you should go. Um, not that I'm saying that nobody who, people who drive over landmines haven't prayed about it, you mm -hmm. know. Sometimes it's God's time for us to go, but uh, you want it to be because it's God's will, not because you've made a stupid decision. Mm -hmm. So you pray an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to pray more all the time. Yeah. Um, and I've told you that one of the lessons I learned was that God wants us to know his will. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not keeping it a secret to see if we can guess what it might be. Um, I think I, I've learned to trust God as, you know, he did make a way. Things were, were bad sometimes, but he did make a way, and he did help us to get that translation finished in spite of everything. And uh, I shouldn't boast and say that I, I trust God completely now, but I, I think I trust him a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of my favorite psalms is... Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and sit up late, eating the bread of anxious toil. You hear that, Gordon? <laughs> he gives to his beloved sleep. Um, I, I used to be a great one for rising up early and sitting up late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Okay. And I, I realize... <sighs> I partly realize that that is not my value. I sometimes catch myself thinking that the harder I work, mm -hmm. the more God will love me and the more value I have. Mm -hmm. But God loves me infinitely, no matter what I do, even if I do nothing. So, yeah, he's, that's something he's teaching me. And, and a time of retirement, yeah, that's going to be perhaps <laughs> more difficult, mm -hmm. but I do know it at least in theory, so he needs to perhaps teach it to my heart some more. Yeah. Dorothy, thank you so much. Uh, you've, you've been an example of faithfulness in all that God has called you to do, but your example as well of humility and honesty about the reality of things and laughing when you should laugh and sometimes laughing when you shouldn't laugh. You know, and all those <laughs> you things. You've got to laugh, Gordon. You've you got, got to laugh. laugh. No, absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, we appreciate it very much. And, yeah. uh, thank you for sharing. Tonight. Thank you, Gordon, for giving me the opportunity. going to switch focus a little bit. This morning, the message revealed something of what was happening behind the scenes. 
uh, as we come to the table, as we come to the Lord's table, the next song is one that speaks about our confidence. Uh, our confidence whenever we fear that the tempter will prevail, whenever we fear that that beast will finally corner us and we're not going to get out. Maybe those moments when, like Dorothea, you thought there's no way, uh, and God makes a way. And uh, the reason in this song is very clear is because of the fact that Christ bled and died to rescue us. So let's sing this song as we prepare to share bread and wine tonight, and we'll stand and sing, He Will Hold Me Fast.